0: Um, well, this morning, uh, we are beginning a, a lengthy journey uh, through the 23rd Psalm, the 23rd Psalm, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Um, at this point, we are not entirely sure how long this journey will take, uh, but I trust that as we do a deep dive into the words, the lines, the phrases of this poetic prayer, that our hearts will grow Increasingly content in the midst of our circumstances, as we grow increasingly more satisfied in our Shepherd. Now, some of you will think maybe that uh, to begin to walk through the 23rd Psalm on Easter Sunday is a bit strange. In some ways, it might be. Uh, typically, on on this Sunday every year, we give a large focus to the, the historicity and the, the evidences of uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ concerning its truthfulness. We, we of course, we want to give Christians uh, assurance that it is indeed true. And we want to uh, persuade people who are not Christians that it is indeed true. And yet this year, we're, we're not giving the, the same kind of um, heavy focus to the evidences and the historicity of the death and resurrection of Jesus However, we would do well uh, to recognize the the association of the 23rd Psalm and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As this 5th century pastor and theologian by the name of Arnibius the Younger, someone I know you all read and love, uh, uh, he he once said that in, in Psalm 22, we see the tribulation of Christ's passion. See, the tribulation of his, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death in Psalm 22. And then in Psalm 23, we receive the joy of his resurrection. Psalm 22 reveals to us the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, And Psalm 23 reveals to us the good and great shepherd who takes it back up again and who is resurrected for the sheep. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is indeed true. He is alive and well. He is ascended to the throne and is ruling over us all. And if you want to talk about evidence, we can talk about evidence, or you can go to one of our previous Easter sermons on the website. But this morning and throughout all of our time on Psalm 23, Three, I want us to not only consider the truthfulness of the the resurrection, but to receive the joy and the peace that the resurrection brings. I want us to see that the the resurrection makes all the difference in our lives in this particular moment. Because it means that even while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we need not fear because our victorious shepherd is with us. And he will lead us safely through. So let's dig into Psalm 23. But for now, we're we're just going to focus on on actually the first half of the first verse this morning and next week as well. I still want to read the whole psalm for us. So let's listen with reverence and joy to God's word to us through his servant, David. The Lord is my shepherd. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our risen Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is his favor, all is well. Precious is the blood that healed us, perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched forth to shield us, all must be well. The lyrics to the well-beloved hymn, all must be well. And I must admit, the lyrics to this hymn have... have. Troubled me in the past. This often repeated phrase, all about all being well, just kind of struck me as overly simplistic, kind of trite optimism. And uh, of course, anyone who has lived into adulthood has lived long enough to have a a strong distaste for the the delusion of trite optimism, uh, to put it lightly i mean if if you only look around at the current state of global affairs or or reflect on the kind of affliction, of affliction and adversity that you 've faced throughout your lifetime or or if if one thinks about all that has happened in our city over the last year or two it's it 's hard to comprehend what on earth Mary Peters could have been talking about when she Pinned those words, because obviously I mean all is not well as we begin to walk through the twenty third psalm, as I said we 're going to walk fairly slowly through the psalm, taking it line by line, sometimes word by word at a time, which of course can be a helpful way to walk through uh, god 's word, trying to suck as much uh, marrow as possible out of each verse, uh, however we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. We, should, we would do well to remember that the, the psalm that what the psalm says and speaks to as a whole is relevant, relevant for each and every word, even while we're examining the words and lines and verses closely. And so even as we consider the first half of the first verse this morning, we don't want to miss that for the one who penned this psalm, King David, All is not well. He seemed to have been walking through a time of affliction and adversity himself. He refers to it in verse 4 as the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps death seemed imminent to him as he penned these words. Perhaps there was death all around him as he penned these words. And then that's not all. In verse 5 he speaks about being in the presence of his enemies. He's he's surrounded by those that oppose him. He is in danger here. And of course we can identify with that. Our state, our our nation, the entire world is currently walking through a valley much like that. The enemy of death has sought to take center stage of the world's drama and is baring his horrible teeth, showing the power he has over humanity and the world as it is right now. And yet, even in the midst of a valley like that, David says that he lacks nothing and that he fears nothing because his shepherd is with him. In in the midst of a valley wherein all is not well, David says, all is well. And for those of us in Christ, we can say the same in the midst of this valley, not out of trite optimism, not not out of a, a delusional trite Overly simplistic optimism, but with a resilient hope, even in the face of darkness and difficulty, even while facing the, our, our current reality. Why? Because we we possess something that no one else possesses we have a comfort that no one else has we have a reservoir to draw upon that satisfies like nothing else we have the presence the guidance the provision the protection of a good and great shepherd who is with us in the valley as Leslie Newbegin once said he said I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and so this morning, we're going to begin by, by looking at him, at our shepherd, at his nature, at his character, and at his, at, at his care for us as his covenant lambs. We're, we'll walk through the first several words of this psalm, seeing that the all-sufficient God is the shepherd of his covenant lambs. The all-sufficient God is the shepherd of his covenant lambs. We're going to unpack that in three stages. First, looking at the Lord, second, the shepherd, and third, the lambs. The Lord, the shepherd. And the lambs. First we see the Lord. The psalm begins with two words. The Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. Of course that that English word Lord there is used a lot. Thousands and thousands of times in Holy Scripture. And you might have noticed in your particular uh, copy of Scripture. That the latter three letters of the word, O-R-D, are capitalized. And that's the translator's way of signifying to us that the word translated as Lord here is a particular name, a name given to God's people by God himself in Exodus 3. And the name that he gives his people to call him by is the name Yahweh, or sometimes it's written as Jehovah. We read the passage earlier wherein the Lord gave his people this name. It was in Exodus 3 where the Lord calls Moses, and is sending him to Egypt to rescue his people from the tyrannical superpower of Egypt and its pharaoh, and so this is this is no small feat; this could mean imprisonment, this could mean torture, this could mean death, and at the end of the day, who 's to say that the Israelites will even listen to Moses and follow him out of egypt and so Moses asks God for some assurances, and at one point he asks him, he says. If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? And to this, God responds by saying, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. This is his name. This is the name by which the people of Israel are to refer to him. The name Yahweh. In Psalm 23, it's written out as Jehovah and translated as Lord. And it's important that we pay particular attention to this name here because it's sort of the basis of all that we'll look at in the 23rd Psalm because his name is a synonym for his nature and his character. You see, his name reveals much to us about who he is as our God and as our Lord. Perhaps one of the most obvious of which is the reality of his, his self-existence, his independence, his self-sufficiency as God. So think about it. For him to say, I am who I am, for him to simply call himself I am, to call himself Yahweh, is to claim that He is dependent on no one and nothing for his existence. For all of eternity, he simply is. That's what Yahweh means. He just is the self-existent, independent, self-sufficient, living God. Theologians have given this uh, a technical term. The term is divine aseity. You can say that. Say divine aseity, divine aseity. And what the, the name of God means and what a means is that God has life and life abundant within himself. He's not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence, for his life, for his being. All necessities are found within himself. The Apostle Paul communicates this very idea in his sermon in Acts 17 when he says that the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And self-sufficiency is, is how we often try to define uh, divine Sadie. Self-sufficiency, and, and, and of course, when we speak about God, we, we, we can't really comprehend Him fully or describe Him fully with our words. We just kind of do what we can. But self-sufficiency may be too mild a phrase. And much of the time when we think of something as sufficient, we think, ah, it's not the best, it's not the worst, but it'll do just fine. It's sufficient. But don't make the mistake to think of God as sufficient. As, as as being merely sufficient in that way. when we call himself sufficient. We don't mean he'll do just fine. Instead, what we mean is that God is infinitely bountiful. He is immeasurably abundant. He is unceasingly perfect in his very being. He is full and overflowing. Every necessity, everything needful is found within himself. He does not need you. He does not need me. He does not need angels. He does not need creation. He is dependent on no one and nothing. His own being is the infinite supply from which he thrives. He is a God who has no needs. He does not want. He has no lack. As C.S. Lewis so wonderfully put it once, in God there is no hunger that needs to be filled, only plenteousness that desires to give. That's what we mean when we talk about the assayity of our holy and transcendent triune God. He is dependent on no one and nothing, and yet from his fullness he gives life to all that is. And there's actually nothing that can fully capture this reality of God in an illustration, I was thinking, I was racking my brain trying to think. I thought about the sun and how its life-giving beams gives life and light to the earth. I thought about how a mother, this, this amazing thing happens to a mother, is able to form and grow and nourish and feed a child with her body. It's this amazing thing. I thought about a, a mountain spring which continually gushes out water from which we receive delicious and refreshing waters to drink. But still, even all those realities are dependent on sources outside themselves from which they give. There's nothing that can actually fully capture this reality However, there there is an analogy, an illustration within the narrative wherein the Lord appears to Moses in Exodus 3. If you remember, in, in, in what way does the Lord appear to Moses in Exodus 3? He appears to him in the burning bush. And part of what's so peculiar, though, about this burning bush is that the fire is indeed in the bush. But notice what it says in verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 3, it says that Moses looked and behold and the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. You The the fire burned in the bush, but it was not relying on the bush for its fuel and energy. The the fire was self-sufficient. Sinclair Ferguson once preached on on Exodus 3 and He said this about the bush and the fire. He says that this fire was in the bush and present in the bush and yet preserving the bush. It was a symbol of God's redemptive power. But notice especially that the fire was in the bush but was not dependent on the bush for its energy to burn. A fire that was independent, a fire upon which all fire depends A fire that was in the bush without burning up the bush. A most pure fire. A fire that was nothing but fire a fire that was not a compound of other energy sources but had its energy source in itself as though God in his singularity was saying to Moses, Moses in your pilgrimage here, you will never encounter another analogy of who I am, the ever living, ever being God who cannot be described in any other terms but I am who I am. And you can see how that must be true if indeed he is going to be the good and great shepherd that he claims to be. Can't you? I mean, let's just take one particular example from the psalm on how God shepherds and cares for us. The psalm speaks about his shepherding care and his provision for us. The latter half of verse one says, I shall not want. Now that doesn't mean that We won't have any desires. Rather, it means that we won't won't lack anything. We won't lack anything that we truly need. The shepherd provides for us. He provides for every need of his covenant lambs. He will not let his covenant lambs go without their needs being met. Well, how could that be true unless the God who is our shepherd is the God who is without need or want himself? He must first say, I shall not want, I will not want, I cannot want, I do not want before we can say, I shall not want. How could that be true unless he is the one who does not and cannot want? How could that be true unless he himself is the all-sufficient bountiful, immeasurable, plenteous God, the great I am, Yahweh, who alone can be described as possessing perfect aseity. That is who your shepherd is, the Lord, Jehovah Jireh, your perfect and all-sufficient provider. And that is why you can trust him as your shepherd. Look with me next at the shepherd. Our God is Yahweh and he is our shepherd. Shepherd, David writes, the Lord is my shepherd. And of course, calling him our shepherd is somewhat different from calling him Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the name he gave us to call him by. And and shepherd is is a title. Shepherd is someone who takes care of sheep. A shepherd is a, a caretaker of sheep. We can obviously see that The title of shepherd here is is a metaphor because obviously God is not a literal shepherd and his people are not literal sheep. It's a metaphor that gives us a breathtaking glimpse into the intimacy of the relationship between God and his people. Part of what we need to understand as we consider this title is is that shepherds in the ancient Near Eastern world operated very differently from shepherds in our day. In our day, shepherds usually oversee large flocks. They possess a great many tools and technology uh, that, that very well may keep them rather distant from their flocks. You know, just as one example, they might use sheepdogs to kind of keep the flock in check and to herd the flock and to lead them where they might need to go. Shepherds in the ancient Near East, on the other hand, they typically watched over over smaller flocks and they lacked much of the tools and, and the technology so that their, their care for their sheep was very up close and personal. The Shepherds would be present with their sheep pretty much all the time. They would, they would lead them to where they were to eat and drink. They led them into places where they were to rest. They stayed with their sheep always in order to protect them against lions and and bears, and wolves, and other predators. When when the sheep were injured, the shepherd was the one who tended to their medical needs and and nursed them back to health. All in all, the shepherd was always there for his sheep and tended to all of their needs. Some have even noted that the the intimacy built between a, a shepherd and a sheep in such places led to sheep being able to recognize the particular voice of their shepherd. And the author of this psalm was well acquainted with this, this kind of care and this intimacy between a shepherd and his sheep. And, of course, we, we well know that David was a king in Israel. In some ways, he was the king in Israel before the Lord came. He was God's anointed one, whom God had chosen to rule and reign over his kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And David led God's people into times of flourishing, unknown to them in previous days and yet david wasn't always a king before he was also a shepherd before he was enthroned as Israel's sovereign he was he was a shepherd over his father's flock and here in the 23rd psalm david is reflecting on his current situation in life he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death he's surrounded by his enemies He may even be at death's door here. We're not exactly sure of the situation, but it seems like death is, is looming. And while there, he's reflecting on Yahweh's particular and intimate care for him in the midst of all of his troubles throughout his life. He's reflecting on how even in the midst of all the tribulations he's faced, Yahweh has been his provider, his protector, his guide, his caretaker. His mind harkens back to all those years to when he walked with his little flock. How he would protect them from the bear and the lion. How he would lead them into green pastures to rest and eat and beside still streams to drink. He remembered how he tended to their wounds and carried them on his back when injured, gently nursing and restoring them back To health, he remembered how he would guide them with his very own voice on the right path for their good and for their flourishing, and how they would recognize and listen to his voice. And as he remembers this, as he recalls how the Lord has been and and done all this for him and more, how the presence of the Lord has always been with him, that he has always been protected and provided for, how the Lord has always guided him with his word, how he has never been in lack, how he has never been overcome. He writes, the Lord is my shepherd. Because of this, David has always been satisfied, always been content. He's always faced those difficulties in life with resilience and hope, all because he's trusted the voice and the care of his God and his lord and so he pins that the lord is his shepherd the lord is his intimate and strong caretaker and i wonder as we as we look at these words if you can say the same this morning as we walk through this this particular valley in this particular time given to us what state is your soul Are you resting in the care of your shepherd? Are you listening to his voice and trusting in his promises to never leave you or forsake you? Are you you trusting in his promises that if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he will provide for all your needs? Are you at rest in the care of your shepherd? Which brings us lastly to the lambs. And here I want to focus our attention on just these two little words nestled between the name Yahweh and the metaphor shepherd. These two little words is my. The Lord is my shepherd. And this emphasizes here the, the sort of particular intimacy and care of the Lord for his covenant lambs. You see David doesn't merely say that the Lord is our shepherd, He says that the Lord is my shepherd. And in saying that the Lord is my shepherd, David is testifying to the Lord's particular love and care for each of his particular lambs. He's not just the shepherd of the entirety of the created order or the whole of the human race, he's not just the shepherd of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's he's not just the shepherd of his church, although that's true. But as the shepherd of his church, he is the shepherd of each of his individual lambs, giving each of them his undivided attention and infinite particular love. He's capable of that because of his bountifulness, his his plenteousness. I, I read Michael Reeves once, right? He said that the Lord is too great to overlook you today. He is too great to overlook you today. He loves you and cares for you with a particular love and a particular care of which he is infinitely capable. And this is part of what makes Christianity so astounding, so scandalous, so peculiar that the infinitely transcendent and self-sufficient God condescends to be your God and my God. Christ died for me and Christ died for you. And even if you or I were the only ones in need of his atonement and forgiveness, he would have done the same. He loves us with a particular love and cares for us with a particular care because each of his own, each of his people are his very own covenant lambs. A pastor and theologian Richard Sibbs once wrote, "He said that, that God is said to be our God and to be a God unto us, when He applies for the good of His creature that all-sufficiency which is within himself. God is our God by covenant, because He has made over himself unto us. Every believing Christian has the title passed over to him so that God is His portion and his inheritance. There is more comfort in this, that God is our God, than the heart of man can conceive. It is larger than the desires of his heart, and therefore, though we cannot say that riches or honors or friends are ours, yet, if able to say by the spirit of faith that God is ours, then we have all in him. His wisdom is ours to find out a way to do us good. If in danger, his power is ours to bring us out. If under the guilt of sin, his mercy is ours to forgive us. If in any want, his all-sufficiency is ours to supply us. If God be ours, then whatsoever God can do is ours, and all things, even whatsoever God has, shall be ours. Perhaps we need to be careful when we speak this way because we as as Western Christians, we're highly individualistic and, and continually confronted with in the scriptures that the Christian faith is not an individualistic faith. It's a communal faith. It's a faith that calls us into the believing community. It's a faith that calls us to look outside of ourselves in an effort to love our neighbors as ourselves, to not merely be focused on our own needs and desires, to be, to be focused on the needs and the desires of others. And yet still, we must realize that the only way we will truly be able to be focused on the good of the believing community and to love our neighbors as ourselves is if we realize that the infinite and immeasurable God gives each of us as children his particular love and care and attention. The only way that you can truly give your attention to the needs and desires of others is if you can say with confidence, the Lord is my shepherd. He's mine, and I am his, and he loves me with a particular and everlasting love, and he will take care of me. You see, even in the midst of death's dark valley, even when surrounded by enemies, you can rest, your soul can be at peace, can be at rest in the midst of a pandemic, Because the all-sufficient God and shepherd has pledged himself to you and specifically to you so that all that he is and all that he has is yours and is for you as his beloved lamb. And where else is this as profoundly and perfectly displayed that in the Christ and the Son of God, Jesus told us As we read earlier, I am the good shepherd. He's the I am, the eternally sufficient God. Yahweh come in the flesh and condescending to us to be our good shepherd. And why did he come? He came to lay down his life for us. He laid down his life in your place. He not only walked through the valley of the shadow of death, but he let it overtake him. He let it subsume him and drag it down, drag him down into its darkness. As perfect humanity, he died in the place of sinful humanity so that the penalty for our sin would be paid and that we might be clothed in his perfection. But that's not all. He who laid down his life for you also took it up again. Yes, he went into death's valley. Yes, he let it overtake him. But because of his bountifulness, his plenteousness, his abundance, death could not hold him. So he kicked death's door down and came out the other side victorious. He came out of death's dark valley, having defeated all our enemies, sin, Satan, and death, so that we might share in the spoils of his victory. And that doesn't mean that we won't ever walk through the valley of the shadow of death in this life. In fact, the scriptures are clear that we will, but don't you see that because the shepherd came to lay down his life for us and to be raised again, we never have to face that valley alone. He's with us Always with us in the midst of the valley, so that we're always guided, always provided for, always protected, and therefore always at rest. And that's not all, but because of his resurrection, we have the promise of eternal resurrection life with him. The psalmist wasn't exaggerating when he wrote that he will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We will dwell in God's house in his presence as his beloved forever and ever. Because of our victorious savior, there is no grave that can hold us down because he kicked death's door down. We can walk straight through death's dark valley and come out the other side victorious in him because he made a way, he knows a path, and he is leading us to that place in victory. And because of that hope, because of that promise, because of that glory, because of that future, whatever it is we face in the here and now, it can't steal our joy, our peace, our rest. The sufferings of this present time are not even worthy of being compared to the glory that we will possess and experience then. On that day, we will... Behold the bountiful and plenteousness and immeasurability of God from whose abundance we are created and redeemed and we will enjoy life with him and his perfected creation forever and ever. And so even now, with our eyes set on him, on the resurrection of Christ, on the glorious future he has promised to us, we can sing. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation, all is well. Happy still in God confiding, fruitful if in Christ abiding, steadfast through the Spirit's guiding, all must be well. We expect a bright tomorrow, all will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow, all is well on our Father's love, relying. Jesus, every need supplying, yes, in our living or in our dying, all must be well. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the good and great shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep and who took it up again for our justification. Seal this word upon our hearts. Cause us to be at rest, to be at peace, to be assured, to be content, to be satisfied in you. We pray for the glory of your name. Amen.